0: The Italian Radio Hour is sponsored by Istituto Mondo Italiano.
1: Buonasera a tutti, good evening and welcome to the Italian Radio Hour,
2: io sono Viviana e io sono Caterina. We'd like to welcome back all our regular listeners and also welcome any new listeners and anyone listening online at khbradio.com. Also be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour and subscribe to our YouTube channel to catch up on any past episodes. E
1: io vorrei dare il benvenuto ai nostri ascoltatori da tutto il mondo, grazie per essere con noi anche oggi well,
2: last week we had um, a lively conversation with two guests. Our first guest was Lou Del Bianco, and we talked about his efforts to get his grandfather, Luigi Del Bianco, recognized as the stone carver responsible for sculpting um, the faces on uh, the president's. Uh, on Mount Rushmore National Monument. Um, Afterwards, we spoke with Michael Pauls, a noted travel writer, about the unique city of Trieste in the region of Friuli, Venezia, Giulia. Tonight, we're also going to have two guests. Our first guest will be calling in from Rome, and she is the noted chef Cristina Bauerman. Cristina is the chef of Glass Osteria in the Trastevere neighborhood in Rome, and she's the only female chef in Rome who has been awarded a Michelin star And in fact, uh, I recently ate at her restaurant. Um, In the second part of our program, we will speak with Pierrette Simpson, a native of Pranzalito near uh, Torino. She is the survivor of the shipwreck of the Andrea Doria, the luxury liner that sank on July 25, 1956, when it was struck by the Swedish ship Stockholm. But before we get to our guest tonight, let's find out the answer to last week's trivia question. Viviana, what's
1: the meaning of moglie e boy de paesi tuoi"? Okay, so this expression moglie e boy de paesi tuoi," I guess right now it might be a little obsolete because uh, people travel, people, you know, and uh, but this was uh, used when maybe you married into uh, to someone that was not from the same uh, region of yours, and then maybe there were some misunderstandings, and people would say. Well, you should have got your wife from the same you know, from the same town where your animal, your cattle is, is coming from. So definitely I'm one of those that has broken that rule because my husband is neither Italian nor American. So I think um, things can, uh, can work pretty nicely also if your marito <laughs> is now from uh, your, your, your land. but um, anyway. Um, Well, it's it's quite a change, you know. It seems like, you know, back in the
2: day, uh, women were pretty much equated with property, and thankfully, things have changed. Things hopefully have (laughs) changed. Uh, In contrast to this attitude towards women, tonight we have two very independent women with very unique
1: experiences. Ma prima, publicita. Parli Italiano, do you want to learn, improve or master your Italian? Istituto Mondo Italiano can help. Located in the heart of Regent Square, Mondo Italiano offers small group classes and one-on-one private tutoring to help you learn Italian in no time. Visit us online at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Well, welcome back everyone. I'm very, very honored to introduce tonight's first guest, Christina Bauerman. Born in Puglia in the south of Italy, Chef Christina Bauerman is not the stereotypical Italian woman, nor the stereotypical Italian chef. After graduating in law, Christina spent many years in the United States where she worked for over a decade as a graphic designer for a firm that owned high-end restaurants. Realizing on her passion for cooking, she attended culinary school and graduated from the Cordon Bleu in Austin, Texas. And after working in restaurants in the United States, Cristina returned to Italy and in 2006 was named chef at Glass Osteria in Rome, where her innovative concept of cuisine has earned her the honor of being the only female chef in Rome with one Michelin star. She is the president of the Italian Association Ambassatori del Gusto and a role model for women in a male profession. Benvenuta al nostro programma, Cristina. Buonasera. Buonasera,
3: buonasera. Uh, How th- do you want me to speak in Italian or English?
1: Oh, Let's do it in English, but if anything comes out in Italian, I'm sure we can all deal with that. <laughs>
3: All
1: right. So, uh, first of all, thank you very much because, as usual, it's 11 o'clock for our guests in Italy and probably you're in the middle of still having guests at your restaurant. Um, But uh, let's start a little bit with uh, your background. And I think if I have done my research properly, you and I share a very little, little special bond. Our moms are both from Trinitapoli. Right? And I only yeah. thought that my
3: relatives he came my from Trinitapoli. <laughs> my mother and my grandmother were both born in, Tr- in Trinitapoli. And then they moved to Celignola, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where I was born.
1: And uh, so I will have to do a little more investigation to see if any of our relatives maybe uh, knew one another. Uh, so your upbringing was in, in Puglia, and actually your initial course of studies was in a completely different area. There was uh, jurisprudence.
3: Correct. Yes, I did um, attend foreign languages high school. Uh, I was so passionate about foreign languages. I've always... Uh, been attractive to understand exactly what people might say in another language and uh, I begged my dad to let me go to foreign languages high school when they were non-public so I went to a private one and then afterwards I switched completely because I really wanted to become an interpreter but I couldn't because as a matter of fact the only uh, university was in Trieste,
0: mm-hmm.
3: but at the time there were problems. Maybe they didn't, reset, uh, they would have not received the funds from the region, so there were uh, some doubts they would actually reopen. So I ended up uh, graduating in law and working for a law firm for a couple of years, for two years, and then I uh, went to the states, to San Francisco. And my official excuse, I really wanted to move there honestly, but my official excuse is that I enrolled at USS where I stayed there for a post program for, like, not even a year, because I was offered a job um, by this company that owned a 16 high-end restaurants, 14 of which were Italian. And because I was the last one that, that came from Italy, they wanted to make sure that everything was Italian. You see, I'm sure you have experienced that. When you move to a new country, sometimes you eat something or you see something and after a little while, the line, the the temporal division line, is blurred. You don't know really if you ate it there or if you ate it here. I didn't, you, you have no idea. So they wanted you to know for sure. And I ended up working for this company called Spectral Foods for uh, for about four years. The company moved to Southern California, and I moved with them. So I lived in Southern California, in uh, Newport Beach, Balboa Peninsula, the, the best place I've ever lived. Certainly, my studio was so small that if I had my side table, I couldn't have my food turned down. But it was absolutely awesome. And um, right there, while I was working for Spectrum Foods, um, I was attracted actually I discovered something about myself that I didn't know. I was, you know, I was attracted to creative uh, work. And my sister is an architect. My mother used to be like the artist of the house. So for me, I was always the kind of limited or you know, I didn't even honestly peek through my um, my soul to understand if I was a creative person or not. And while I was there, in reality, I ended up asking my boss if I could just spend time in the graphic design department. And he said, of course, yes. You know, it was also free for them. So it was just two hands more, you know, and one brain over it. And um, what reality is, is that I ended up working as a graphic designer for the following 10 years. And uh, at one point, I was uh, kind of tired of living in South California because the weather was always the same. I found a a, a city very, very difficult to live in. Unless probably you were born there, I don't think it's a city that I could bear more than two, three max four years. So I got a job offer in Austin, Texas, and that's where I moved. I had uh, visited Austin a little while before, and um, I fell in love with it. And I honestly think it, it was the right choice. Uh, Austin, it was. It's, right now, it's huge. But at the time, it was the perfect size city. You know, you had everything. You had uh, museums. You had uh, exhibitions. You were not far away from great museums like Dallas or Houston or Fort Worth, for that matter. And, uh, but then at the same time, you had uh, a music, live music scene that was fantastic and a foodie scene. Mm-hmm.
2: Can you tell that's us a little right, bit about know. that foodie scene? Because it's it, yes. it also is so different than the rest of Texas, where you think of barbecue, know. you know, and that's about well, all you think about. I
3: know. Well, there's barbecue as well. You know, Franklin Barbecue has been you know, like probably the uh, reference for everybody who wanted to learn barbecue. But Austin is a very democratic, very liberal. It's called the Berkeley Birkits- City, the layback City, um, the Hippie City. So um, it's a very, um, it was very different from the rest of Texas. As a matter of fact, you know, whenever people ask, where are you from, you just say, I'm from Texas. They say, you say, I'm from Austin. Mm-hmm because it's uh, literally different uh, from any other city in, uh, in, in uh, Texas. So, for instance, um, right now, there's so much talking, rightfully so, about um, restaurants that have their garden in the backyard, they grow their own herbs, they grow their own vegetables. Well, they were already doing that in Austin. Or, for instance, uh, I'm talking about 20, 25 years ago, 22 mm-hmm. years ago, for sure, uh, or, for instance, uh, you were talking, you know, people right now talk about um, uh, organic food. Well, if you think that whole foods at the time when it was really, everything was organic, was born in Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. then you, you kind of understand that people were directly already ready what a healthy food, healthy diet. So well, it was I, very interesting. I was going to say,
2: how how was your experience in Austin such that it, it got you out of the front of the house and into the back of the house of the restaurant?
3: Well, um, I've always cooked. I'm Italian. And from the South. So as as everybody knows, in the South, you wake up in the morning, and at breakfast, you talk about what you're going to be cooking for lunch. And at lunch, you're going to be talking about what you're going to be for cooking dinner? for dinner. <laughs>
1: because it's a percina.
3: Yeah, food is literally like, uh, I would say the... The timetable or the clock of the day—it mm-hmm. uh, kind of like sets different moments of the day. And you know, normal people using use smartwatch or iPhones or whatever to to know what time it is. Well, for Italians, it's like, okay, is it lunchtime? Is it after time? Is it mm-hmm. dinner time? And so, I've always cooked, even with my friends, especially when I went to live by myself in uh, in Austin, where it was, um, I would say, probably easier and uh, closer to the Latin version of French relationships in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Southern California and in San Francisco, uh, the, the relationships uh, among people are different. So friendship is, is uh, conceived in a different way. Whereas when I went to Texas, it was way closer to the Italian way. So my apartment literally was like a, uh, like an open house on Friday and Saturday when I got off work, and I would cook. I would cook, I would cook up the storm like all day, and I had a lot of fun. And uh, in the end, I, I was 32 at the time, in which I realized that probably I was going, I was able to express my creativity more through food, and I felt free than through graphic design. I think one of the reasons is because that's what I call the immediate gratification.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Working in a company, I worked for Harcourt, and then uh, a year afterwards, I had my small a small company of uh, you know design, but it was really small. And um, uh, sometimes you are like a part of the process. So, for instance, you had to print a book, even the cover. Had like two thousand meetings to decide exactly what was right, what was wrong, and move this and of that. So by the time basically it was printed, you were already probably two projects. Uh, after that, you didn't even remember you did it. Mm-hmm. And in any case, it was not really your work. It was a, a team effort work that was absolutely wonderful. I have literally my name book uh, printed on a lot of books that I that I worked with, but it was a team effort. It was never really yours. And uh, whereas in the kitchen, it's different. In the kitchen, in, that's what I think it attracts people more than anything else, other than the fact that eating is, is a, a physical pleasure, and nobody can deny that. But it's also emotional, because uh, you create everything from scratch. Think about it during the pandemic. I mean, you couldn't find meat, you couldn't find flour. Because people started to bake like crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really related to the fact that you could see like literally from just white flour to all of a sudden it was like a baked piece of bread. And you did it all by yourself. Mm -hmm. And also you could literally like make things up according to what you have in your fridge. And uh, it's your creative process. It's your mind at work. Nobody really can tell you this is right or this is wrong. I mean, technically, a person like me could say this is technically wrong, but in general, it's conceived as just an expression of creativity. And there's the immediate gratification because you prepare it, people eat it, and they love it. Um- and so you... satisfied by that.
1: And also, uh, Christina, the the cooking having uh, the restaurant uh, really allows you to uh, manifest and express many other things that you truly believe in. Um, Usually, you know, from a chef, people are expecting a cookbook, but uh, you do do have a a book and too bad it should have arrived today but didn't get it on time where you (laughs) are Actually give recommendations you have these ten rules but what I really love is the way that you have expressed you really combine your life philosophy with the dishes and these are very unique intricate dishes but it was actually to uh, bring people to um, closer to a certain type of cuisine by proposing Uh, let's uh, actually maybe we can dive in in some of the dishes that really earn you international uh, fame for instance the panino alla liquirizia that was a major breakthrough can you tell us a little bit and also what value do you associate with um, specifically this uh, this dish yes Uh, let's uh, go back a second because it's important what you said otherwise
3: it will get too long but I will cut to the chase and tell you um, what I what I think that I what I'm trying to do basically uh, arriving to the culinary world with a, though a huge background and baggage that had nothing to do with it one of the questions that I ask myself is like okay I am switching career great I'm going to give myself 10 years but what am I going to really do am I going to just create a nice dish or a nice recipe I didn't want that so I have always used food to do something else. So food is the main, the main mean of, uh, let's say, a transmission of culture. You transmit uh, a thought uh, or a piece of culture, a piece of your country through food. And uh, so when I came to Italy, the, the, the recipe that you just mentioned was a major breakthrough because it kind of like made me understand exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to have, like, I wanted to demonstrate that if you had all world culture, like sheets of paper, one on top of the other, there would be an overlapping of a corner. And I wanted to find that corner. So that recipe that you just mentioned, I served it in 2006. Consider this, though. In Italy, in 2006, there were high-end restaurants and then satsoria or fast food. That's it. Nobody has ever thought to bring, like, to to make you know high-end food democratic because that's what I try to do. Uh, high-end food shouldn't be like just limited to people who can afford it, but you should try to make it appealing and affordable to everybody. I'm not saying that you need to lower the price at all. I'm just saying that you make you need to make people understand how much work there's behind it, and that once every six months, anybody or almost anybody can actually form it because it's an experience that brings you like a cultural um, a cultural experience and emotional experience. It's something that you owe yourself as maybe, you know, like a recognition of whatever effort you made in, in, in your life. And uh, I served basically uh, foie gras escalos, which right now is, will be extremely political and correct to service, but in 2006, everything was, uh, that was allowed as if you were a hamburger. Mm -hmm. I made fake chips uh, of rice, and I served it with a fake ketchup of mango, and a fake, um, well, another kind of ketchup, that made with a souterrain, or some kind of like wine, sweet wine, that is generally served with a foie gras escalope. And I made a licorice bun, because licorice is my favorite. it makes of Yeah, exactly. I could I could die over licorice. I mean, I it's, it's never missing in my house. It's never missing in my restaurant. And when I said that people had to eat it with their hands, I remember at the time my partner um, in business, he looked at me and he said, are you crazy? I'm like, are you out of your mind? I'm like, we are trying to do high-end restaurants. And I looked at him and I said, but I really do want to do it. And it has been one of the most successful um, dishes. And people who come from a restaurant after so many years, they still remember it. So um, that was, for me, a kind of an lighting, an enlightenment. I said, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to try to kind of like take different cultures and match them up in order to insert, for instance, one ingredient from another country into a traditional recipe. Think about it, for instance, uh, um, uh, Oxtail Roman Whey. Oxtail Roman Whey has a very similar ingredient to, the, I'm talking about the sauce, mole. And, in fact, uh, inspired by one of the most famous chefs I can't, right now I'm missing his name, that does aged mole. I've done aged Oxtail Roman sauce, exactly like does it with the Solera system, the Solera method. So, um, and the other thing that I'm trying to do is not only bring cultures together, but also to use food to kind of, uh, let's say, support certain causes. So I volunteer for Comen. I volunteer for Yale. They are all like research, uh, cancer research, especially female cancer research facilities or organizations. Um, I support the Pure and for Kids, which have been one of the founders that uh, uh, support research for uh, epile- uh, child epi- epi- epilepsy. Yes, yes. that's epilepsy, right. Epilepsy, yes. That's right word. Uh, exactly, you know, the diet makes a huge difference in uh, in uh, children that are, unfortunately suffer from epilepsy. And uh, I am part also of Shax just got back yesterday morning from uh, Lisbon, where we organized, uh, we participated and we organized a dinner in um, for the UN conference on sustainable fish and oceans.
2: Yeah, I was just going so, to ask um, about your your efforts in sustainable gastronomy. Can you yeah. just explain briefly, just to our listeners, what exactly is sustainable gastronomy?
3: Well, sustainable gastronomy is uh, the the direction that everybody has been uh, trying to take during these last few years, for uh, you know obvious reasons climate change, hunger in the world, the paradox of nutrition. You know, half of the world is starving to death and half of the world is always on a diet. There's so much waste. And um, also, for instance, the way that we buy food. I always say when you go to the grocery store and you buy something, in that particular moment, you actually make a political choice. Mm -hmm. You uh, are choosing what to buy Of course, with information that are available to you, because sometimes you go to the grocery store, you think you're buying something absolutely great for the earth, for uh, people who have worked for for that product and so on, and maybe it's not true. But whenever you are aware or you're allowed to be aware, then you are making a choice. Well, for the restaurant, it's exactly the same thing. Whenever you purchase something, maybe you might be tempted to buy something that is a little bit more convenient, but if you get information, and this is our job, to gather information on how the product got to me, how it was farmed, who is the person behind all that, then I'm making that political choice, supporting what is ethically farmed. And it's not just the product, but also how, for instance, that farmer has treated his or her own employees. Because you see, in Italy, the states have um, this problem, but not so evident as in Italy. In Italy, especially in the south of Italy, we have a huge problem of exploitation, especially of of out-of-Italy immigrants um, that are literally exploited to the limit. Sometimes you find out that they live like in 20, and 30, like huge hunger. And uh, or huge houses that are probably not even taken care of as they should. And uh, they are earning maybe like, I don't know twenty, twenty years a day, thirty years a day, but they even have to pay rent. So in the end, they work like maybe twelve hours a day, thirteen hours mm-hmm. a day to earn nothing. Mm-hmm. So it is important for us when we go to the grocery store, and we, or the market, and we see, for instance, I always make make this example because it's uh, very evident, and we pay, for instance, watermelon at 10 cents per kilo, 10 cents. The question that we should ask, ask ourselves is, but if this watermelon is paid 10 cents, is you know, it's costing me 10 cents a kilo, how much money is the person who actually has picked this watermelon, has made? So... Um, being sustainable is important and also covers different uh, varieties, different aspects of the production process. In this particular case of the UN uh, Convention on Sustainable Fish is because uh, in Italy and also in the States, uh, sometimes we have a very bad perception of what farmed fish uh, should be. A little bit because, the, the you know, the, the, actual farming, the actual farming is not regulated as it should. It is not controlled as it should. And so sometimes, you know, we have the impression that we are eating like a sort of sub-product. But the point is that we have no way out. We don't have uh, this perception, for instance, for animals. We regularly eat, you know, beef or chicken or pork that is actually farmed. Um, as long as it is hopefully not an intensive um, uh, farming, but uh, we don't have the same perception for fish. <laughs> but if we keep on fishing, the entire sea is going to be totally empty and it's going to be destroyed by the, the, you know our actions. So the UN and the, the youth convention that was right there Really, what what try to to create is a new narrative on farmed sustainable fish. Mm-hmm. So, so appropriately
2: say, doing um, it then, doing it in an in ecologically appropriate manner, as opposed to unregulated right. uh, fish uh, farming. Right.
3: Christina yes. we um, not only mm-hmm, go sorry. ahead. No, not only you know the actual fish, but also, for instance, the containers that transport the fish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know that is important. Because you have styrofoam, then it's one of the most most pollutant um, stuff that you can use mm-hmm. and everybody uses it. So I'm sorry, what, were you asking me a no, question no. or you were saying that we were we are fine.
1: No, no, I just say it's it's what when, when we go to a restaurant, there is so much that we don't think about it. We are considering that uh, immediate consumption, but it is so refreshing and so informative to actually listen to how you think and so that when we come to Glas Osteria, we know everything that is behind. It's not just what we see with our eyes and what we're going to taste is your philosophy of life and the way that you operate the restaurant. Um, for people that want to come and visit, unfortunately, uh, we, uh, we are kind of out of time and because yeah. we know that it's getting really late for you, for people that want to come and uh, find, uh, find you. Um, can you tell them where you're located? And you're in TrustAver, right? Because Kathy's nodding. So okay, I've been yes, there. I've been there. She's, She's been right. there. Yes, yes, and I will find. be there soon. I'm counting the days. Um, um, yes, awesome. So well, do I mean, you, I mean
3: mm-hmm. literally the heart of Trust TrustAver means across the fiber. So it should be like the poor people, you know, poor people zone. And but now it has become... the vibrant uh, you know, like uh, area of... Very much uh, so. And Ro. I like it. I live here. I literally live like two and a half minutes walk from my restaurant. In fact, I don't own a car. Psychologically mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yes, uh, good. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the heart of Persevera, and uh, I've been there now, in general, it's going to be 17 years. Wow. And uh, it's Vicolo del Cinque. So mm-hmm. it is called Vicolo del Cinque because out of the little square where I am, there are five little streets that mm-hmm. start. And that's why it's five Vicoli, no? Five, Vicolo yes. del Cinque.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, you can go, of course, on uh, on uh, Google my name, and everything will come up, or It or .com. And uh, you will find all the information in English as well. And I wanted to add one more thing: you actually got my book, but you got my first book because I published another one two years ago. So sorry about that. I maybe I didn't tell you, but yeah, there's another book. That <laughs> okay, we can get the second one. We can get the second
1: one, and this time I'll bring it so that I can get it autographed. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Yes. And by the way, I have to say that
2: the meal that my husband and I had was the best culinary oh, experience I have ever had in my life and we're still talking about oh. that lamb that melted in our mouths <laughs> oh and then the, the, the ta- yeah, oh, yeah. oh my gosh the tagliolini and the the, the the ravioli with stuff with the crab and I can't even go on I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> just <laughs> thinking about the the culinary experience <laughs> indeed indeed
1: thank you so uh, Christina it's been a pleasure thank you again very much for taking time for your very busy night um, definitely I will see you in a couple of weeks, maybe three. And uh, uh, just keep on doing what you're doing because you're really bringing the tricolore forward for all of us. Thank you so much. (laughs) Ciao, ciao. Buona serata. So
2: So let's uh, now pause for a, a, a brief commercial break.
1: So, applying for dual citizenship, need documents translated. Istituto Mondo Italiano provides a certified translation and interpretation services in 20 different languages. Be sure to visit us at www. Well, welcome back to the second portion of the program. And our second guest will be Pierrette Domenica Simpson, a native of Pranzalito near Torino, and a survivor of the shipwreck of the Andrea Doria, the Italian luxury liner that sank on July 25th, 1956, when it was struck by the Swedish liner Stockholm. Pierrette is also the author of the books *Alive on the Andrea Doria*, the greatest sea rescue in history, and *I Was Shipwrecked on the Adre- Andrea Doria*, the Titanic of the 1950s. In 2016, Simpson wrote and produced the documentary *Andrea Doria: Are the Passengers Saved?*, directed by Luca Guardabascio, and was shown in Pittsburgh. And that is when Pierrette and I first met. Pierrette, welcome to the program. Grazie mille,
4: Viviana,
1: and it's good to reconnect with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So, um, Pierrette, obviously you have an amazing story to share with our listeners tonight. Uh, You are from a smaller uh, town near uh, Torino, and uh, can you tell our audience at what age you came to the U.S., and actually, why did you come to the U.S., and who were you traveling with on the Andrea Doria
4: Well, I come from a town called Pranzalito, which is near Ivrea. Most people know Ivrea as opposed to the village, which is uh, near Torino. It's a UNESCO site, Ivrea, by the way.
1: Is that where they have um, the Battles of the Orange... Do I still do that? Ivrea has this very unique event. It's called the Battle of the Oranges. Sorry for the interruption, yes. <laughs> but yes. it's a very unique <laughs> event of Ivrea. <laughs> they,
4: they love it, but I, I've never seen it. I left Italy when I was nine, mm-hmm. so, and I left with my grandparents. We were farmers. And my mother had immigrated to America eight years before, so I literally did not know my mother. I was 15 months old when she left for uh, to create a better life in America for us, and my grandparents wanted to remain a part of my life, so they sacrificed everything. They sold their farm and animals and all their possessions and what they could, they in the big trunks on the Andrea Doria, and we were coming to the New World in 1956 to meet Mm -hmm. my mother and um, the new family that she had created
1: here Mm -hmm. and the Andrea Andrea Doria was the Fiore all'occhiello the pride of uh, post-war Italy it was a glamorous uh, transatlantic ocean liner uh, and it was defined as a floating art gallery there was uh, so much uh, modern design and uh, carried uh, celebrities on on board and I believe their first uh, voyage was on uh, January 14th 1953 and the one you were yes. on was supposed to be their last one is that is that correct
4: uh, No not that I know okay. of um it was the last one it was Voyage 101, but uh,
1: there I, there was no expiration date. I, on no, the voyages, I think, I, yeah, I might have read that uh, Curiosity, that they don't want to stop at 100, so they had to push it to 101. And but uh, anyway, this is just really? a, little, <laughs> a, little, a little detail. I'll have
4: to look into that. <laughs> But, I don't think so, though, but I'll look into it. <laughs> uh, but
1: obviously, this was a, a memorable uh, and unforgettable uh, evening. It was an evening uh, where there was a lot of fog, um, and that's what the captain Pietro Calamai was reporting uh, officially.
2: Yeah, can you give us a yes. little bit of your recollection as a nine-year-old on this huge luxury liner? It must have been quite, quite the experience. And and what are your recollections of the events when, when the collision occurred?
4: Well, during the trip, it was. Fun for me, not necessarily for my grandmother, who was absolutely paranoid of being uh, near water, much less on water. (laughs) But she let me go in the swimming pool. It was the first ship to have three swimming pools, one for each class. So I spent my days in the pool with... uh, Um, a young lady named Norma Di Sandro, who would later pass away from injuries, and uh, Pat Mastincola, who was my age, and he's still alive along with his sister. He saved his sister's life, by the way, because he was such a daredevil on the ship. He knew every corner of it, (laughs) managed to get through the hallways in the dark to save his sister from... um, the bow of the Stockholm piercing through her cabin and uh, through her, her bed. I, it was just unbelievable. But it was, it was really eight wonderful days of a nine-day journey, and uh, we had wonderful food, and it, most of the time the sea was calm except for one day. But on the last night, when we decided, my grandmother and I decided to celebrate arriving into the New World, and we had reached uh, near Nantucket Island, and so we were dancing and singing. My grandfather decided to be very prudent and be in his cabin below. We were in third class. Um, and, and keep su- his briefcase with him and get ready and rested for the new world. Um, at 11.10 p.m., on a very foggy day, as you said, and foggy night, our horn was blowing every two minutes as prescribed by maritime law to warn other ships in the area. And um, all of a sudden, at 11:10 p.m., we felt this tremendous jolt, and the ship went up in the air from the right side, tilted to the left, the port side, went back to center, and then inclined drastically, almost uh, 20 degrees immediately, which was never calculated by naval architects and marine engineers, to the starboard side. Um, We were inside the dance hall, as I mentioned, stunned and furniture thrown all over, people injured, screaming, uh, lights flickering on and off. We had no idea what had happened until someone said they were outside and they had another ship coming at us and and piercing us, piercing our starboard side and later we found out it was one third within the ship and all three classes first, second and third and it was a, a very large hole that would bring in tons of water per minute per hour, I guess I should say, um, that would cause immediate beginning of sinking. Fortunately, we didn't sink right away. We had an 11-hour period where we could be rescued. So meanwhile, my grandfather somehow made his way up the stairs in a water and oil and, and fumes-filled hallways, and rolled up his pant legs, put his hat on, and a suit on. Most people didn't even have anything on other than curtains or whatever they could manage to throw over their bodies to make it up uh, to the deck. And he found us in the social hall, where by this time, a few hours later, we had been sitting on the floor and praying, Ave Maria,
3: Piena di Grazia, mm-hmm. And of it course, at the hour of our death. Totally chaotic. Kind of
4: yeah, yeah, very different meaning. So um, we were together, at least, and then finally someone came uh, to the deck doors and uh, announced that rescue ships had arrived. Now this is uh, probably two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Hard to, to know. You know, at what time we heard that announcement and found that we had to crawl upward in this terrible incline to try to get out the deck doors on the high side and make our way down to the lower side where the lifeboats were waiting for us. And these were lifeboats from... Not our ship, necessarily, because on the starboard side, it was leaning so drastically that we could not get into the lifeboats. So people had to either be lowered by ropes, like me, or jump into the ocean, like some people did, or make it down a rope on their own accord, like my grandparents Mm -hmm. did, even though they were so scared of water. And... um, We made it into the lifeboat below. On the other side, the port side, the lifeboats would not be lowered Mm -hmm. because the incline was so steep that they had never been designed, the davits had never been designed to release the lifeboats into the water. So people were just waiting there for hours in the dark, hoping for some kind of mercy. And uh, fortunately, um, there were brave people who lowered us, there were brave sailors who came from the Ile de France, Mm -hmm. even from the Stockholm, which was the ship that collided into us, Mm broadsided us, and the the, um, Coast Guard, uh, naval training ships, fruit freighters. And sailing ships, it was just an amazing sea rescue, called the greatest sea rescue in peacetime history
1: now obviously you know um, the, the the facts that you're um re- sharing with us you know in this very calm wo- voice and uh, we really appreciate it because um, i'm sure again it must have been uh, screaming probably even uh, limbs and blood you know all that um yeah. things that you would associate yeah. with a shipwreck and uh it was indeed the greatest uh, rescue in history um Obviously, there is also the part of the litigation and the determination of fault that went on for quite some time. Uh, What do you know about what went eventually? uh, What went on for to determine? um, Well, we know now, but uh, for all those years of investigation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well,
4: that's the very complicated part. Um, It didn't go on long enough as far as the Italians were concerned, uh, the captain and the crew, et cetera, because most of them never got to testify, or if they did, it was for a very short time in uh, the courts uh, of New York. Um, What is very interesting is that both ships, uh, filed suit and accused one another of a fault. And uh, the same insurer for both ships was Lloyd's of London. Um, pretty hard to fight Lloyd's of London and any decision they make. So um, there were hearings, but there was never a trial. Mm-hmm. And the officers. Uh, and the captain complained later that they did not have a chance to speak and the Italians did not know English where the Swedish people did the Swedish captain and, and crew so when they testified they could you know be understood whereas we relied we the Italians were relying on a translation that was not necessarily accurate so the The survivors and families of the deceased, 46 of them on the Andrea Doria, five on the Stockholm, but the 46 passengers of of the Andrea Doria's families uh, were filing, um, they were were listing their, their loss of belongings, loss of life as was requested by the Italian line by the courts, I assume, and they were sending them in, and the amounts were staggering. So Lloyds of London uh, made the decision that, that there was just not enough evidence to decide who was at fault, even though all the evidence was available the course recorder uh, was really all that was needed and human testimony and witnesses um but that's what was decided so we had to abide by i think it was 85 million dollars that we were claiming in loss of life and property Mm -hmm. we got six million and had to divide that up among all of the uh, people, the claimants. So basically, there was never a fault assigned, and later, um, not much later, um, Alvin Mascal, an author, New York, New York Times journalist, wrote a book called Collision Course, and he wrote it. While in Sweden, at the <laughs> invitation of the Swedish government and the Swedish Line, and it was definitely not favorable uh, toward the Italian crew and captain. As you know, and you explained very well to me when uh, you wrote that you 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 understood that the the uh, Andrea Doria was meant to be. Um, the symbol, the icon of Italy's resurgence from the ashes of World War II. So um, we had a really hard time um, making ourselves uh, be in a good light. So Mr. Moscow realized that Italians had the reputation of being cowardly, you know, World War II, Mussolini, the Mafia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, whereas the Nordic people were seen as rational, and uh, courageous, and detailed, etc. So it was not obvious, but implied very heavily in Collision Course, the book. Um, who was at fault, mm-hmm. even without, you know, stating this mm-hmm. is who was at fault. But that that sealed public opinion mm-hmm. for but, years until the next book was written, and then the next book was mm-hmm. written, which were basically
1: very similar to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, am I um, maybe... Am I corrected at some point, um, and we're coming also close um, to the end of the program, that actually uh, Pietro Calamai uh, was indeed clear um, of any accusations, but he is one of the, those uh, captains, whereas the Swedish captain eventually went back to sea, but um, Pietro Calamai never sailed again, where he was cleared of any possible responsibility um, in a letter that he actually never opened before dying.
4: Yes. There was a a naval engineer named John Carruthers who did the research along with Captain Robert Mern of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, and by that time, um, in the 70s, they had developed a computer simulation at the US Merchant Marine Academy so they could put human testimony and all the scientific details within this KORF, this computer simulation, and come up with a plausible explanation of what had really happened. Before that, there was no evidence of what had happened. So the authors of the three books that I mentioned earlier simply wrote what they had heard what they had read in the newspapers, and it was not based on science. Mm-hmm. So, fortunately, unfortunately, fortunately, these uh, two gentlemen did um, have evidence that cleared him. However, the captain never got it because he died two months before mm-hmm. they arrived in Genova to show them, show him the proof that they had. Mm-hmm. When I found out that the Captain Byrne of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy knew what had happened and that it was never published to the public, and I was part of the public that was blaming both the Stockholm and the Andrea Doria, I was furious. I couldn't believe that a whole country and the whole marine industry Had really been, you know, but put a defamed basically (laughs) stain on them exactly, Mm -hmm. and no one was going to clear them. Well, I had been a, a, a language teacher for 37 years, and I decided that I was going to become an author and clear the captain, and the crew's name. Mm -hmm. So that's when I wrote Alive on the Andrea Doria and later made the the film, because this was just injustice Mm -hmm. uh, against Italians. It was injustice toward the truth of what had really happened. And it was, like you said, a stain toward the maritime industry where it should have been a, a glorious trip, another glorious trip, 101,
0: Mm
4: -hmm. um, that made Italy look like they were great master mariners and Mm
1: shipbuilders. Indeed. Uh, Pierrette, uh, we are actually... um I'm out of time and I do recommend everyone to actually follow Pierrette both on her website but also on her Facebook because there is actually a new exhibit that I just opened up a few days ago at the Noble Maritime Museum, Andrea Doria Rescue at Sea, that has a lot of artifacts from the life ring to the ship's um, brass bell to underwater footage of the diving team recovering to one thousand pound ceramic mural panels by Italian artist Guido Gambone so please do uh, do follow uh, uh, Pieretta Domenica Simpson um, and you will see footage uh, also the documentary was just spectacular Pieretta, Thank it's time you. for us to to say goodbye for tonight. Uh, but I do hope that our paths are gonna cross um, again. Maybe you'll we'll come back to Pittsburgh for a second time. Yes, that
4: would be great. <laughs> or maybe
1: we'll meet on Staten Island at the exhibition. Benissimo! That sounds like a great invitation. Thank you so much. Yes, the Mad
4: Warriors exhibition of his artifacts that he recovered himself, yes. along with. The help of covert divers is there, and we really would love the public to go there and uh, see what masters the Italians were in so many domains.
2: Well, grazie, grazie mille again, and unfortunately our hour is almost up. And, uh, the Buona serata, and it's time for us to say Arrivederci and alla prossima. We want to thank you all for tuning into the program. If you have any questions or comments, please contact contact us at the Italian Radio Hour at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.
1: Who will be our guest next week? Well, our guests will be Mary Minniti, founder of the Italian Garden Project, Rosetta Costantino, author of the cookbook My Calabria, who has an extensive Calabria style garden, Michela Smith, the director of the documentary Heirloom and the conversation is going to be about the importance of growing a vegetable garden in Italian American culture.
2: And remember, if you or any of your family and friends have missed a prior episode or would like to listen to this episode again, please visit our website at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org and
1: click on the Italian Radio Hour tab. Vorremmo ringraziare ospiti, Cristina Bowerman e Pieretta Domenica Simpson, il nostro sponsor Istituto Mondo Italiano e la per la Musica. Finally, before we leave, here is our trivia question for next week. What does? Come il cacio sui maccheroni mean? Again. What does Come il cacio sui Maccheroni mean? You can send in your answer to the Italian Radio Hour at gmail.com.
2: And remember, if you are not living in the Pittsburgh area or you might be out of town, remember you can catch us streaming live at khbradio.com every Thursday at 5 p.m. And be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour. Until next time, alla prossima. Ciao, ciao.
0: The Italian Radio Hour has been sponsored by Istituto Mondo Italiano.